What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's September 24, 2006, in Glasgow, Scotland. 23-year-old Polish student Angelika Kluk is living and working in St. Patrick's Church. Today, Angelika is helping the church's handyman, 60-year-old Pat McLaughlin, paint a shed. But Angelika doesn't know that the man isn't who he says he is. The man is actually Peter Tobin, a violent registered sex offender. He has been using an alias to avoid detection. Alone with Angelica, Tobin seizes the opportunity and makes his savage attack. He repeatedly bludgeons the girl on the head. He then rapes her, gags and ties her up, and finally stabs her multiple times in the chest. Tobin dumps the girl's body beneath the floor of the chapel in an underground chamber near the confession box. Almost a week after her disappearance, the girl's mutilated body is found by Glasgow police in the church. The investigation into Angelica's murder would uncover a series of shocking crimes dating back as far as the early 1990s. Another awful discovery at 50 Irvine Drive. A body bag thought to contain the remains of dynamite nickel brought out from what was the most ordinary of houses. It is no longer. Tobin defies even my imagination. There is something about him that sends a shiver down my spine every time I think about him. This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Peter Tobin. Peter Tobin was born in Johnston, Scotland, in August 1946. There were early signs that Tobin would have a violent future, say criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and true crime writer Jeffrey Wansell. He was part of this post-war baby boom generation. He came from quite a large family. He was one of eight children. His dad worked for the local council and his mother was a housewife. And by all accounts, he was a bit of a wild child. Some suggest that he was violent towards his siblings and quickly developed a habit of minor thefts and occasional burglary. By the age of seven, he was in reform school, and that is something that is, is quite significant here, because these places where these boys went were quite brutal in terms of the, the regime, in terms of the, the treatment by, by staff. Lots of children misbehaved, uh, lots of children went off the rails, but I think you had to be quite extreme to, to find yourself in a reform school. 
As Tobin grew up, his childish rebellion developed into a reckless disregard for the law. Now, as a young man, Peter Tobin moved around a lot. He did a lot of low-skilled jobs and moved from place to place. And he would often get involved in property crime. He was convicted of, of burglary and fraud. So here's somebody who breaks the law time and time again and is seemingly okay with it. And I think for most of his life, he, he's constantly pushing that further and further. At the age of 22, Tobin began a relationship with 17-year-old Margaret Mountney. The pair were married in August 1969, by which time they had relocated from Glasgow to Brighton, England. It all seemed to start rather well. He was incredibly charming, he was incredibly attentive, but it soon degenerated into something altogether different. He would regularly beat her up and lock her in the house. He wasn't just violent and cruel towards Margaret. When Tobin became fed up with Margaret's dog, Brute, from barking and peeing in the house, he decapitated the dog. A number of the women who've had relationships with Tobin say that he can be very charming for quite a long period until you'll find that he becomes very violent. The women who've known him often talk about this ability to turn on a sixpence to suddenly become horrific when, in fact, moments earlier, he was being perfectly nice or charming. It is part of Tobin's characteristic. He is an evil man hiding in plain sight. Years later, after Tobin's eventual capture, Margaret said he was like a Jekyll and Hyde character who always had the capacity to kill. Not surprisingly, the marriage didn't last. Tobin was sent to prison for three years for burglary, and the couple divorced in 1971. After serving his sentence, Tobin married again in 1973, but this marriage was just as violent as the first. By 1976, the relationship was over, and he soon moved on to another one. Peter met his third wife, Kathy Wilson, in 1986, and there was quite an age difference. She was 16 at the time, and he was around 40. So she was very young, she was very vulnerable, she was very impressionable, and he turned on the charm again, and she moved in with him very quickly, and they had a, a child together. The couple were married in Brighton in 1989, but Tobin moved his young bride and their son far away from her family to Bathgate in West Lothian, Scotland, in 1990. Now, this relationship went pretty much the same way as his other marriages had gone. Um, he was incredibly controlling. He was incredibly abusive. He didn't like her leaving the home. He, he would make sure that she didn't go out and didn't talk to anybody. And she eventually fled. She eventually summoned up the courage to leave this relationship. And she only did that through secretly saving up bus fare for a very long time in order to travel to England with her son. Despite their relationship ending, Tobin moved back to the south of England in 1991 to be close to his young son. He settled on Irvine Drive in Margate, Kent. His next-door neighbour at the time was Dave Martin. Well, the picture he painted for the community was a nice... Steady bloke, no loud parties, no loud music. He was in, not an annoyance in any way. 
If you were stuck or you had a problem, you only had to ask him and he'd give, he'd give you a hand. He'd help out. Yet Dave soon became cautious of Tobin after he made some disquieting comments. We'd be outside and a couple of young girls would walk past and he'd say, cool, how about them? And I would say, don't be stupid, Pete, you're old enough to be their father. Oh, yeah, yeah, and he'd laugh it off. But Dave wouldn't have to worry about his neighbor for very long. After two years in Margate, Tobin moved again with no explanation. All of a sudden, the house next door was empty. No ifs, no buts. Um, I, shrug I shrugged my shoulders at the time. I thought, well, he's moved on. He was a little bit on the weird side anyway, so I didn't give that a lot of thought, neither. By 1993, Tobin was living in an apartment on the south coast of England in a town called Havant, and his violent nature was only getting worse. On August 4th, Tobin was at home watching his five-year-old son for the day when two 14-year-old girls came to visit one of his neighbors. They'd knocked on next door and discovered there was no one in. Tobin saw an opportunity invited the two girls to wait in his flat with his son. After all, what could be less threatening? As his son slept, Tobin drugged both girls using a chemical called amitriptyline, a nerve pain medication, and began to sexually assault them. Until Tobin's son awakened and interrupted the attack. Panicked, Tobin left the girls to call his ex-wife falsely claiming he was having a heart attack in a last-ditch effort to hide the evidence of his assault. He turned the gas on in the flat and then proceeded to leave with his son, presumably hoping that they would die of asphyxiation from the gas. Leaving them for dead. Fortunately, the girls regained consciousness and managed to escape Tobin's home before calling the police. Journalist Martin Brunt remembers hearing about the disturbing attack. Two schoolgirls, 14 years old, had been held prisoner in a flat, had been plied with drink and drugs, had been raped, and then left in the flat with the gas turned on. And whoever had done it, uh, had effectively left them to die. Very quickly, police announced that they were looking for a man called Peter Tobin. Forty days after the attack, using the alias Peter Wilson, Tobin was found and arrested in Brighton. On May 16, 1994, at Winchester Crown Court, he pleaded guilty to rape and indecent assault and was sent to jail for 14 years. He served 10 and was released in 2004. Once again, he made a new alias for himself, Pat McLaughlin. He changed his name so he wouldn't appear in the serious sex offenders register, wouldn't set off any alarm bells anywhere, and got a job as a church handyman back in Glasgow. When Pat McLaughlin came looking for refuge at St. Patrick's Church, the priest and the charity workers who took him in had no idea they were offering sanctuary to a man who committed 
and would continue to commit unspeakable crimes. Members of the local charity group Loaves and Fishes, Dennis and Kathy Curran, remember the night McLaughlin came by the church. I met Patrick McLaughlin in May 2006. It was a wild night, and he came in for something to eat. He said he was homeless. He had nothing to eat, and we gave him food. And he came in, and he said he was hungry and that, and we said, right, but Father Jerry had told him that anybody was frightened to go out into the night and nowhere to sleep, they could sleep inside the church. Throughout his life, Tobin, who was born and brought up a Catholic, had a persistent connection with the Catholic Church and at various points during his periods on the run or disappearing or adopting false identities, took refuge in uh, Catholic churches and Catholic communities. I think it was simply that that was somewhere where he felt comfortable, where he knew how to conduct himself, where he could hide in plain sight. He could conceal his true nature behind the facade of a church handyman or a member of a Christian community. And that was a very safe way to conceal the reality of what he wanted. Tobin took advantage of the Curran's hospitality and the community of St. Patrick's. Soon, he became the church's handyman. But Kathy Curran grew concerned about the ominous stranger who had joined their community. I says to Dennis that there was something far wrong with them. I, I wasn't too sure what it was, but as far as I could understand, that the jigsaw with Pat McLaughlin was no fitting together. There was something not right there. But Tobin's next step was more monstrous than what any of them could have imagined. On September 24, 2006, Angelika Kluk, the 23-year-old Polish student who was working as a cleaner for the church, went missing. Dennis had to break the news to his wife. You see, that girl, Angelika Kluk, we don't know where she is. And I went, what do you mean? He said, she's vanished. All her stuff's there, all her credit cards and everything are all up in their room, but she's vanished. They discovered that the last person seen with Angelica was the church handyman, Pat McLaughlin. Dennis Curran provided police with a photograph of McLaughlin. At six o'clock it went in the evening news nationwide, and within minutes, the phone line was jammed to say, that's not Pat McLaughlin, that's Peter Tobin. Once police knew the identity of their main suspect, they quickly discovered that Tobin had a violent past. David Swindle was the lead detective on the case. And soon after my involvement, I arranged for the church to be searched again by specialist officers and specialist teams. There's a garage attached to the church, and that is where Peter Tobin was with Angelica Kluck working on some woodwork. He called her his little apprentice. He actually was interviewed by a police officer when the missing person report was made, and he stayed there for another day. And when the heat was on, he left. When he realised 
it was being treated as a major investigation, he left. This is someone that was cool and calculated. Police launched a nationwide search for Peter Tobin. Mr. Tobin is considered a potential risk to members of the public. Any person who sees this man is advised not to approach him. Crime journalist Martin Brunt recognized that name. But what made it particularly interesting for crime reporters who were covering the case was that police were appealing for a man called Peter Tobin and it rang bells. It took me and others back to the days of 1993. They didn't realize that he was, in reality, Peter Tobin with a dreadful history of sex crimes. He was a man hiding in that community under a false name, had duped the church authorities to employ him as a handyman, and of course they were completely innocent of his background. Five days after her disappearance, on September 29, 2006, police discovered the body of Angelica Kluke under the floorboards of St. Patrick's Church. She had suffered severe head injuries and multiple stab wounds after being attacked in the adjoining garage. It was in there just after the priest Father Jerry left on that Sunday Within minutes of it, someone across the road had heard a scream. He hit her over the head with a table leg. There were splinters in her head, rendered her unconscious or semi-conscious, bound her hands with cable ties, further assaulted her, dragged her in a polythene sheet into the church here and across the church and put her body under the floor like a bag of rubbish. She was put under there. He stabbed her, whether that happened underneath there or where it happened outside, and he raped her. He left her dead. This should have been a day of worship here at St Patrick's Church, but instead the building remains a crime scene, sealed off and guarded by police. And today brought the news that the people who laid those floral tributes were expecting but dreading that the body found hidden underneath the floorboards here was indeed that of the missing Polish student. I think the discovery of Angelica's body was awful enough that a young woman had died in those circumstances. The fact that she was buried under a church added some sense of horror and drama to the way people reacted to it. The fact that a suspect was somebody who had been working at the church, somebody who seemingly had volunteered to be a handyman at the church didn't really make sense. DNA evidence found on Angelica's body was confirmed as Peter Tobin's and his fingerprints were found on the tarp in which she was wrapped. But somehow, Peter Tobin continued to escape authorities. Despite a nationwide search, he seemed to have disappeared entirely. So things were moving very fast. We have the human remains of a young woman who's been ferociously attacked. Horrible, horrible scene underneath the floorboards. Forensic examination is ongoing. We knew by this time, that Peter Tobin had a history of violence, sexual crimes. He had been in prison. He was a dangerous person. 
Where was he? But David and his team wouldn't have to wait long for an answer. In early October, just over a week since Angelica's murder, they received a crucial breakthrough. Tobin had been spotted, this time using another fake name, James Kelly, over 400 miles away. We got a phone call from the police in London that he had checked into a hospital in a false name. Someone had recognised him. A Metropolitan Police officer went in there and confirmed his identity. And I arranged for a team of uniform officers to bring him back to Scotland. On March 23rd, 2007, the trial of 60-year-old Peter Tobin began at Edinburgh High Court. He was charged with the rape and murder of Angelica Kluke. Tobin pled not guilty. Dennis Curran was present. We went into court, he was sitting with his lawyer, and he gave me a big smile, as if, how you doing, pal, you know? I just totally ignored it. Six weeks later, on May 4th, Peter Tobin was found guilty. Judge Lord Mingus described Tobin as an evil man before sentencing him to serve a minimum of 21 years. He was sent to Edinburgh Prison. As he left court, he violently lashed out at photographers. Yet, David Swindle and his team were convinced that there was still more to the Tobin story. Throughout the trial, they had been building a massive file on Tobin's past. They were not convinced this was his first murder. Do you get to 60 and you start killing? That was a question in my mind. Has this individual done it before? So I thought, we need to look at this individual's movements, his background, look back at his life. However, this was a difficult thing, because if it ever got out that we were looking at Peter Tobin as a potential serial killer, that would have been prejudicial to the case that we're building regarding Angelica. So I set up a very confidential operation called Operation Anagram, and that was working in a back room, and we never went over it. We never went out in the public regarding that until he was convicted of the murder of Angelica Kluke. In Operation Anagram, they started working in reverse, from Tobin as the presumed culprit, tracing back through potential victims. It is very difficult to analyze cold cases with really only rumor to go on if you don't have a body or bodies, if you don't know who the victims were, if they could have been missing persons or they could have been victims, it's very difficult. There was a team of officers that had sent out to look at his connections and where he lived, and they came in excited, saying, he's getting a dressing basket. And the dressing basket was, at the same time, as a well-known missing person who'd been so many years ago, Vicky Hamilton. 15-year-old Vicki Hamilton had been last seen on February 10, 1991, waiting for a bus home. Her case was considered to be one of Scotland's biggest missing persons inquiries. What are the chances 
of an individual like that being in the same area at the same time when this really high-profile missing person had disappeared. So I contacted Lothian and Borders Police and they started looking at the case again and reviewing that case. In June 2007, police began to search Tobin's former home in Bathgate in hopes of finding evidence that could link Tobin to Vicky or other potential victims. But Tobin's transient lifestyle made it very difficult for the team to investigate on their own. Tobin had spent his whole life travelling about, and we found this out very quickly. So we had one connection, which was Bathgate. We realised that he spent a lot of time in Brighton, in Margate. I thought, we need to join us up. So Anagram became UK-wide, and involved every single police force in the UK. And we set up this operation, which is the best example of joined up working throughout the UK. As David's team began to grow, the force was able to uncover more potential victims. We had another missing person that was a potential link, and that was Dinah McNichol. Dinah had been at the Lip Hook Festival, and she had been with her then-boyfriend, and they were looking for a lift, and they got a lift from an individual, a Scottish individual. But after the mysterious driver dropped off her boyfriend in Surrey, 18-year-old Dinah never made it home to Essex. She was last seen in early August 1991. Police focused in on one of Tobin's previous homes in Margate, 50 Irvine Drive, where he had lived in 1991. His former neighbour Dave Martin recalls the day the police knocked on his door. The police turned up in November 2007 and they asked to uh, speak about Peter Tobin. So I told them what little I knew at the time and then they said uh, something rather strange, had he done any gardening? Well, it made me smile at the time because that was the last thing I've ever seen him do gardening. Then I remembered the sand pit. Dave had to think back to 16 years ago. I noticed that Peter was uh, digging a hole next door. So I leant, leant over the fence and I said, you're going for Australia, Pete, because the hole did seem to be a bit deep. Oh, he said, I'm building a sand pit for my youngster when he comes up at the weekends. So anyway, I thought no more of it and he carried on. A couple of days later, I looked over again and the sandpit was all filled in. So next time I saw him, I said, what happened to your sandpit, Pete? Oh, he said, I, I wasn't allowed to put one in. It something to do with regulations. It was unsafe for the boy. So I said, well, I haven't heard of that one, but I thought no more of it at the time. It was critical information for the police. Was it possible that the bodies of both Vicki Hamilton and Dinah McNichol had been buried in the back garden of 50 Irvine Drive 16 years ago? On November 12th, Tim Mills, the senior investigating officer on the Dinah McNichol case, 
made the decision to excavate the garden at Tobin's former home, convinced he would discover her body. Specialist equipment, including ground-penetrating radar, was brought in as police underwent their search. It took 24 hours for police to find human remains. I can remember to this day what I was doing when I got a telephone call from Tim Wills to say that I had found a body in the garden. I asked him, was it Dynamite Nickel? And he says, no, it's Vicky Hamilton. Operation Anagram had uncovered exactly what they had hoped, but also dreaded. For Vicky's family, a 16-year wait had been brought to a devastating end over 450 miles from where she'd last been seen. Peter Tobin will have walked this path. It leads to what was his backyard. There are police search teams there now and several large holes they've been digging. The blue tarpaulin covers the shallow grave where they found 15-year-old Vicky Hamilton's body. When you learn that they'd made that kind of progress. You're filled with, a, I suppose, a, a sense of sadness, perhaps relief for the families. And, of course, it threw up the prospect of another trial of Peter Tobin. Tobin was immediately charged with Vicky Hamilton's murder. But the police had yet to finish their excavation. We came here to search for the remains of Dinah McNichol or any physical evidence which might link her disappearance to that house. And that's what we will continue to do. A few days later, after finding Vicky's body, a second body was found in the garden. As expected, it was Dinah McNichol. When they started to bring the bodies out, I was sick because I had no idea whatsoever that anything like that had gone on. Nobody had a clue that anything like that had gone on. It was just unbelievable. Tobin's fingerprints were found on the bin bags used to wrap Dinah's body. Furthermore, post-mortem examinations found traces of the drug amitriptyline in both Dinah and Vicky, the same drug Tobin had used on the two teenage girls he'd attacked in 1993. Tobin first stood trial for the murder of Vicki Hamilton on December 3, 2008, at the High Court in Dundee, Scotland. He was found guilty. Judge Lord Emsley added another 30 years to his original 25-year sentence. Seven months later, Tobin was in court once more, charged with the murder of Dinah McNichol. But the trial was postponed and the jury was discharged. The judge ruled Tobin was not fit to stand trial due to ill health. Peter Tobin has a habit of feigning illness all of the time. As a psychopath, he likes playing with people. He likes pushing their buttons. He likes to be the puppet master that's pulling the strings. And he knows that, that when he claims that he has chest pains or he's having a heart attack, that prison authorities need to, to react to that. They need to respond. And I think he quite enjoys watching people running around after him and, and pandering to him. I think he finds it quite entertaining. By December... Tobin's trial for Dinah's murder resumed at Chelmsford Crown Court. William Clegg QC was prosecuting. Well, all murder cases are traumatic 
for obvious reasons, but this one particularly so because the family um, had absolutely no idea what had happened to their child for nearly 20 years. So there was a great deal of emotional tension um, in court. The family were there throughout the trial and um, behaved with great dignity and composure throughout it. During the trial, even more revelations came out about Tobin's vicious crimes. In the Dinah McNichol case, Clegg says that after Dinah's mother's death, she left Dinah with 2,000 pounds in her bank account. After her murder, Tobin had withdrawn that money from a number of banks on the south coast, banks that were situated um, comparatively near to addresses that he had a connection with, and therefore there was yet a further connection. Dave Martin took to the stand to testify against his former neighbour, though Tobin seemed nonchalant. He was sticking his thumbs up and saying, are you OK, Dave? I haven't seen you a long time. Which was a little on the shocking side to me because I really didn't want to know him. It was as if he wasn't taking any of the proceedings seriously. The defense offered no arguments against the evidence. The trial lasted only three days. The jury deliberated for 15 minutes before reaching a verdict. Tobin was found guilty yet again. Well, to be honest, it was a very easy case to state. The evidence against him was uh, overwhelming. One had to use just an element of common sense to appreciate what would be the chances of a stranger burying a body that they had um, presumably murdered in a random garden, selecting one that just happened to be one that another murderer had already buried somebody else. On December 16th, 2009, Judge Mr. Justice Calvert Smith gave Tobin another life sentence, his third in total. In July 2010, it was reported that officers working on Operation Anagram had narrowed their review down to nine unsolved cases of murder and disappearance. Peter Tobin has no respect, a man of no humanity. He will talk. He's been interviewed by police officers involved in Anagram. But he'll talk about himself because this is an individual that loves himself. He doesn't care about anyone else. So he gets a gratification, whatever gratification he has had killing people. He's a sad, sad individual who's taken probably more lives than we know. What sets Tobin apart also for me is that he's taken some pride in gloating in the wake of his imprisonment that he's killed 48 women and then saying, but you've got to prove it. No proof of those extra killings has ever been brought forward. But a number of high-ranking officers, particularly in Scotland, are absolutely convinced that Tobin has killed many more women. But they don't know which ones and they don't know where. In June 2011, after they failed to identify more victims, Operation Anagram began to wind down. I am proud of what I did as regards Peter Tobin, informing Operation Anagram, search for the truth. 
I left the police in 2011, but I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the Tobin case. And in my mind, I always live in hope that we will find out the truth someday. That's why it's important that we have programmes like this. People like Tobin and other killers should never be forgotten about. Tobin is an evil man. He's got no respect, no compassion. Peter Tobin, the only thing he's worried about is Peter Tobin. I think Peter Tobin is evil. Always was and always will be. And that's my honest opinion of it. And I think he's done more than people realise. The sense that he knows something that the rest of us don't gives succour to Tobin's vast arrogance. But to be honest and to be clear, there is a level of depravity in him which I fear knows very, very few boundaries. He's a genuinely terrifying man, and I hope that he spends the rest of his life firmly behind bars. What Makes a Killer is an Audioboom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audioboom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi, Daniel Birch, and Kai Angle. Recorded by Nate Thiel at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beal and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling one 800 656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thank you. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. In February 2003, police were trying to track down a vicious attacker who was targeting young, blonde women. He would run up behind them and hit them on the head, often with a hammer, repeatedly, and then run back to his car and disappear into the darkness. He was responsible for the brutal murders of two young women and the attempted murder of another across a 16-month period. Even after his incarceration in 2008, he was linked to the murder of a 13-year-old schoolgirl, a crime that had gone unsolved for almost a decade. They've waited nine years and been put through the trauma of this court case. They linked arms as the jury foreman pronounced Levi Belfield guilty of murder. I hate it when people refer to him as an animal 
because animals don't behave like that. They kill to survive, not for fun and pleasure. He was born evil. He is pure, pure evil. <laughs>